The scripture reading for this morning's sermon is found in Mark 6. Mark 6, verses 14 through 29. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his, brother's, his brother Philip's wife because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias's daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and, and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Good morning. It's good to be here with all of you. Um, last week, we looked at um, Jesus sending the disciples out um, so we have this is the disciples going out. Jesus sent them out um, very meagerly. They had four things that they were able to bring. I don't know if you guys remember it. It was their sandals, their belt, their, um, what was it? Uh, their cloak, and uh, there's something else, the belt. Or was it the staff? Oh, and that was my son. That's my boy right there. He was listening to the Bible as I preached it last week, so good job. Good job, Sonny. He gets a star next to his name. So they had four things, and then um, and then they return afterwards. And right in the between there, there's this interjection of John the Baptist in this story. So uh, Jesus is doing miracles. His family rejects him. They sh shouldn't. We see how the Holy Spirit is needed for faith in Christ. Because if anybody should believe in Jesus, it would be his family, it would be his hometown, yet they reject him. So the need for the Holy Spirit to believe in Christ is very evident. 
Jesus sends his disciples out. There's kind of this new dawning. We look at the Exodus and how the people of Israel were out of slavery and going into the promised land. Um, there was a connection last week for the, those four things, were the same four things in the Passover that the Israelites were instructed to take with them. So there's a connection between Jesus sending out the disciples and the Exodus where the Israelites were leaving oppression and the, pro the proclamation of the kingdom of God through the disciples is now kind of this new Exodus away from the oppression of sin and the dominion of sin into the gospel being freed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's kind of where we've been. And uh, today we're going to look at um, why does Jesus... Why does Mark interject this story of John the Baptist? So let's pray, and we will get to work. <clears throat> Father in heaven, thank you so much for yet another beautiful day and beautiful morning. Um, Lord, thank you for bringing everybody here this morning. We ask God that you would clarify your will for us and that you would give us biblical truth that our souls would, nourished, would be nourished upon. So be with us this morning. We ask, Lord, that we would delight in your word, that we would see the beauty, not only of who you are, but also the beauty of how you reveal yourself through your word. Lord, let us rejoice in that. So be with us, we pray. Give us minds to hear and comprehend the glories of Christ. And I pray that we would be convinced, convicted, that truly to be a, a doorkeeper in the gates of God and the courtyard of God is better than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. So go before us now. Be with us as we preach this word, as we invest our minds and our hearts in this word. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. So I remember back in 2006, 2007, I was on staff at Bethlehem Baptist Church, and I served in the family discipleship department. And one of the things that Bethlehem did for their children's ministry workers, I don't know if they still do this, but they issue a mug as a thank you gift for all of those who volunteered in the uh, children's ministry. It was a great idea, actually, to thank the workers. And then each year they had like, a, like an artistic display that they would put on the mug. And on this particular year, um, there, uh, there was basically two designs. Both of them were very s similar. And it came down to the family discipleship department to, to decide, to vote on which one they liked better. And that was kind of going to be the final call on it. But what it was is it was kind of a mashup of all of these sayings of, of the attributes of God. It was a, it was a mashup of um, all of these, like, I guess, uh, descriptions of God's character, his attributes. And they were, all these sayings were formed into the formation of a cross, and as they kind of bleeded together into, into the center, it got exceedingly bright. And it was communicating, like, just the effulgence of all of these character qualities of, of God going together and becoming bright almost in an overflowing way that was, you know, kind of communicating the glory of God. And uh, the, uh, the reason why... Um, the reason why, uh, or I'm sorry, that was, so that was the basic design of both of them. And the difference was that one of them was just left plain. It was just the cross with the brightness of it in the center. And then the other one had the word glory on it. And um, I was the one of the ones who voted against the word glory being on it. And it, you, you'd, you'd be surprised to know there's only one other person in the department 
that was also correct and voted against having the word glory on it. And um, so it was, and, and his name was Kevin, actually, Kevin, Kevin Dow. I don't know if you guys ever met him or knew him, but we both agreed that the word glory shouldn't be on there. And we were both right. And everybody else was wrong. Um, and the reason why they were wrong was this, and this is very important, okay? You guys have to listen to this. This is very important. The reason why they were incorrect in this is because that was what the artistic expression actually said. Um, there was a way that the word glory on there, slapped on there, actually cheapened the beauty of the art. And what good art does, I would, I would recommend to you, what good art does is it doesn't actually say something very, like, you know, it doesn't have to write it out. You know, it's like Bob Ross. You guys ever uh, watch Bob Ross do a painting? Okay, Bob Ross does his painting. I, I, when I was a kid, I loved looking at Bob Ross. Like, it's just, he took this blank canvas, and like 30 minutes later, it's this glorious picture of like this mountain, right? What if he slapped glory all over the... All, no, that, that's what the art says. There's a way that like, saying the, putting the word glory on there cheapens it because art, that's the point of art, it says something so much more effectively by the beauty of it than you can just slap on there with the word indicating, oh, by the way, this is indicating glory. Um, so it kind of cheapens it. So you may disagree with me. Um, I, you could. I would, like to do, I would like to agree with you if you disagree with me, but then we'd both be wrong. So um, uh, anyway, that, that's the idea here. Um, the reason why I tell you that story is because Mark paints us a beautiful picture he gives us a beautiful piece of art. And I think what he communicates is something that is maybe subtle, but if we look into it and see it, it makes a, a, a strong point to us. And I'll get into that a little bit more. My job this morning, though, is to help you to see what Mark is, uh, the, the good piece of art that Mark is drawing for us and, the, and that we can come to appreciate it. So that's my job this morning, is to help you to appreciate the, the, the drawing, the, pa the painting that Mark has given us in this story of John the Baptist and Herod. Now, a few things that you should know, <clears throat> a few things that you should know <clears throat> about this, that Herod in our story is one of the sons of Herod the Great. So this is a little bit complicated. Herod the Great had 10 wives, so you could imagine drawing up the family tree on that one. In fact, Herod the Great figured out a way that he could sleep around and still be faithful to his wife. Just have 10 of them, and then that way you can do both. So that was, that was, uh, that was Herod's um, mode there. Now, Herod Antipas is the Herod of our story today. So many times in the New Testament when you read about Herod, it's not always the same Herod. There's several Herods. Herod Antipas is the, story in our, uh, the Herod of our story today. Herod met a woman, and her name was Herodias, or Herodias. I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce it. I'll go with Herodias. He said, hey, I'm Herod, you're Herodias. I think we're a match made in heaven. Let's get married. So they did, and the only problem was that they were both already married. So they had to kind of jilt their current spouses, and it also meant that because Herod was married to, or I'm sorry, Herodias was married to Herod's half-brother, Herod Antipas would be marrying his niece. And the Jews whom Herod was ruling over would have seen this as incest according to Leviticus 18. This was a sin. This was not acceptable. And we should also point out that this is one of the only sections in Mark where Jesus isn't the main character, where he's not featured. So we can ask, why does Mark draw our attention 
to John the Baptist? That's a good question. Why does Mark take a time out here and focus so much attention? It's actually a pretty big chunk. It's a pretty big story where he takes a time out from Jesus and he focuses on John the Baptist. And the reason was, the reason is, is because he wants us to know what the cost of discipleship is. John prepared the way for Jesus' ministry. That was the role of John the Baptist. He prepared the way for Jesus' ministry, but he also prepares the way for his crucifixion. John leads the way in Jesus' ministry. He also leads the way, kind of. He paves the way, and he kind of foretells, in a sense, of Jesus' crucifixion. John was killed. He was a martyr for his faith. Jesus would also be killed. He would also be murdered. He would also be put to death by civil authorities. And John also demonstrates the consequences of following Jesus in a world that's driven by greed, driven by decadence, driven by power, driven by wealth. John exemplifies this, what, what it means for a follower of Christ, a true, genuine follower of Christ, in a world that is driven by these things, driven by decadence, power, and wealth, and greed. Notice just prior to the, this episode, like I pointed out at the beginning of the sermon, Jesus sends out the twelve. And at the end of this episode, immediately, we see that they return. So uh, right in, in between there, he interjects this idea. And I think the reason why he does that is because he wants us to know something about what it means to be a disciple of Christ, that there is a cost to being a disciple of Christ. He's not saying that uh, everybody's... Um, um, uh, lot in life is going to be the same as John the Baptist, but what he is saying is that this certainly is one of the costs of disciple of being a disciple of Christ. So this sermon, I think, impresses upon the readers of Mark the cost of discipleship as he wedges it right in between Jesus sending out the twelve and then them coming back. And this sermon invites us to consider the cost of following Jesus in the midst of a broken and twisted world. We should count that cost. And I know we have but again, this is, reminds us to do so. Now, you might ask, why did you let the cat out of the bag right at the beginning? Why did you give us the punchline? Surely, as I just told you, the point that Mark is trying to impress upon us is the cost of discipleship. John dies for his faith. What more can be said about this? What more could you possibly say about it? Well, what I want to say is this. Yes, that is true. There's a plain point here. There is a cost to discipleship. There is a cost to following Jesus. But Mark says something so much more, and he paints us this glorious picture so that we can see this point, that it's better to be a doorkeeper in the courts of the Lord than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. That's what Psalm 84 says. Mark paints us a picture, and he gives us this beautiful piece of art so that we can be persuaded that even though there is a cost to discipleship, that it's still better to be a disciple of Christ than to dwell in the tents of wickedness and to follow the kingdoms of man and the kingdoms of, world, of this world. And I think one of the reasons that Mark does this is he shows us, he doesn't just come out and say, hey, you know what, the kingdoms of the world are bankrupt. He shows it to us. He doesn't have to say it. He, he doesn't slap the word glory on it. He just lets it speak for itself. So my job this morning is to help you to see, to look at this painting that Mark painted and to see it and to behold it and to get the, what he's really communicating. So that's what we're going to do. I'm not going to tell you that there is a cost to discipleship. That uh, Well, I already told you that. But really what I want to impress upon us is not just that there is a cost to discipleship, but I want us to see that it is better still to be a disciple of Christ and to live for him in his kingdom on this world. Because that is better than being a part of the kingdom of man. It is better to be a doorkeeper in the house of God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. 
That is true, and I want that to resonate with us, and I want that to be impressed upon your heart and your soul. So let's look at Herod. Let's look at Herodias as we get into this. Jesus is gaining a significant following, and Herod is paranoid that John has returned as Jesus to haunt him because he imprisoned him and he killed, he killed him. So this is, this is Herod, Herod's paranoia here. He's like, oh no, I killed this guy. I think he's dealing with guilt. I think that's what he's dealing with. He's like, I didn't really want to do this in the first place. And now he's coming, now it's coming back to get me. So he really had this thought that John the Baptist was kind of reincarnating or coming back in the spirit of Jesus, or the spirit of John the Baptist was coming back in the person of Jesus. And he's haunted by that. And at the time, there was three po popular views on who Jesus actually was. And none of them admitted that he was the Messiah. Number one, there was Jesus was John the Baptist returned to life. It seems like that's the, po that's the position that Herod takes. Number two was that Jesus was Elijah returned. And there is some, I mean, there is a, a, a kind of a prophecy in the Old Testament about how John, or uh, I'm sorry, Elijah is going to return in the spirit of John the Baptist, but not Jesus. And really, if you want to, if you want to dig into this a little bit more, I'll just say this as a side note. If you look at the Old Testament story in 1 Kings, um, there's Ahab, who really is a lot like Herod. And then there's Elijah, who's a lot like John the Baptist. And then there's Jezebel, who kind of plays uh, plays Elijah or uh, plays, um, I'm sorry, King Ahab against uh, Elijah. And, um, and really those three kind of really foreshadow, if you will, John the Baptist, Herod, and Herodias in this story. So if you want to go back and look at that in 1 Kings, you can do so. Um, really, that's, I think, kind of setting up this scenario here. So number one, Jesus was John the Baptist returned to life. Jesus was Elijah returned. And number three, he was one of the great prophets who were long silent. So those were the three common views in the, day, in the time of Jesus, at the time of Herod. And none of them uh, agreed that he was the, the Messiah. All of them rejected that. But I love how the Bible presents to us people honestly for the mess that they truly are. If you really look at it, Herod, like all of us, is complicated. I mean, how many of us can really say that we're not really all that complicated? We're all very complicated. Um, we're hard to figure out. I'm, I'm hard to understand. I, I have a hard time understanding myself sometimes. Even though he was wicked and he lived according to his pleasure, he still actually feared John. Doesn't make much sense, but he did. It tells us that. Much like Pilate knew that he shouldn't execute Jesus, if you look at that, <clears throat> there's also a parallel to Pilate and Herod. Much like Pilate knew that he shouldn't execute Jesus, he does. And Herod executes John, even though he fears him, and he didn't want to execute him. And we're told that Herod actually subscribed to the John the Baptist sermon podcast. And even though he was perplexed by John, he still listened to him gladly. He, found, he, was, he was attracted to what he was saying. How do you figure that one out? Well, it's complicated. <clears throat> so nonetheless, he didn't quite understand what John was saying, but he was drawn to him. It was like a magnet. He feared him, but he still didn't. In the, in the, he was wicked, though. So Herod never wanted to arrest John, but he did so to please his wife. And we are told that Herod didn't want to kill John, but he did so because of his oaths and his guests. <clears throat> now, look, if you think about that, it's almost a bit of comedy in that, if you will. And he says that uh, he, he, he actually put him to death because of his oaths and his guests. 
It's like saying, you know, the dean admitted the underachieving student into the prestigious uh, school because he was compassionate and because of the sizable gift that his father gave. You know, it's a little bit like that. Herod kept his, uh, he, he, he kept his promise. He put John the Baptist to death because of his oath and because there were people there watching him. And he didn't want to let them down and he didn't want to appear bad in their sight. And I think that's the real reason. That's, the, that's obviously the real reason. Now, let's talk about the oath a little bit, if we can. First of all, his daughter Herodias comes to dance. And obviously, the goal is to please Herod. It's to please the noblemen that were there, the military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. That's the, that's the goal. And she succeeds. And almost certainly, this isn't a routine out of the Shining Lights Christian Dance Studios. Right? This is probably sensual in nature almost certainly it's sensual and when it talks about Herod being pleased it's almost certainly that he's sexually aroused and probably all the men in the audience were probably so as well and Herod likes this right this is a good thing um he's 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 entertained his guests he looks good and then he goes and makes this oath he makes this kind of this rash I'll give you up to half of my kingdom and really, I think this is kind of a bravado. I'll say a little bit more about that. But, uh, you know, I can even look better. I can look powerful. I can look like I've got something to give, like I am going to give. I'm going to reward this young lady. Let's talk about Herodias a little bit. <clears throat> Herodias. She was the real mover and shaker. Uh, she was the one who wore the pants in the family. You guys ever heard that story or that saying? She was the one who wore the pants. She was the puppet master pulling all the strings, really. If you look at it, John was in prison because of her. John wound up beheaded because of her. Herod had a soft spot for John. Herodias did not have a soft spot for him. She hated John so vehemently that you can almost hear her celebrating when she gains the opportunity to cut his head off. Her daughter dances, and while you know she finds herself on an episode of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, she faces this question, what do you want up to half of my kingdom? She doesn't know, so she uses one of her lifelines. She phones a friend. She goes to her mom, and it's almost as if her mom was just waiting in the wings, like ready to pounce, like she waited up, like she dreamed about this at night. You know, How could I destroy John the Baptist? He goes, or I'm sorry, this, this gal, her daughter, goes to her, Mom, uh, Herod offered up to half my kingdom. What do you, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Uh, I, I mean, it just came to me. She's obviously thought about this. She's just looking for an opportunity to put him to death. She gains her opportunity. And now, uh, Herod didn't have the power. And this is what I was kind of getting at before. When he said, I'll give you up to half my kingdom, I will, I will, I will uh, reward you in this way, um, is actually kind of probably a figure of speech. You know, it's kind of like, uh, I don't know, when I think about this, I remember being in high school and, you know, in summer break hit, hey, let's get together this summer. It's kind of a figure of speech. That's yeah, not going to happen. Um, when Herod said, I'll give you up to half of my kingdom, he actually didn't really have the power. He didn't have the jurisdiction. He didn't have the authority to authorize something like that. So it was almost like a figure of speech, probably to look good. But you know what? His wife, Herodias, kind of catches him. He said it. I have all these witnesses. Okay, we're going to take you up on that. And you can see, I, I kind of show this uh, because I think she leverages his audience against him in a cunning move. She's very cunning. She's very shrewd. She sees this as an opportunity and she catches him. And really, if you think about it, I mean, you guys, many of you guys are married. You have the household kind of arguments. 
I, you know, I think our I think our daughter should share rooms. No, I don't think they should share rooms. You know, when Herod and Herodias argued, I think John the Baptist should be dead. I don't think John the Baptist should be dead. They had that was their argument, and now she catches him. And the reason why I point that out is because she knew, she knew how Herod felt about this. She understood. She understood that Herod didn't want him dead. She did. And she was willing to leverage her relationship and leverage the situation over and against his will. So to decapitate someone for, in an ancient Jew, Jewish context in, in, a, in, in the mindset is a clear statement of victory over their enemies. And this is most commonly practiced in settings of war. You guys remember when David cuts the head off of Goliath after he wins? This is kind of a testimonial right of god's victory victory and his provision for over the enemies of israel but this was a clear indication that they had won the battle that they had be that they delivered a decisive blow to the philistines now herodias doesn't claim victory for god she claims victory against god's servant who is john the baptist herodias doesn't have you know the ephesians 5:22 plaque on her wall She's more like the ultimate feminist who desires to rule over men, if anything. So you see her leveraging this situation over and against John's wishes, or I'm sorry, Herod's wishes. And let me talk about a couple of th different ways that we can apply this to our lives. You know, th that's just kind of a general outlay of the story. Let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about how we can apply some of this to our lives. Um, let me ask this question. Why did John have to die or why did he die? Let's, let's press into this a little bit more and, and, and unpack this. Now, the, the Bible tells us that corruption is in the world because of sinful desire, because of the desires of the flesh. 2 Peter 1.5, Romans 8, elsewhere. And what's interesting is that a good man here died because of the desires of both Herod and Herodias. They're clashing and they're... They're contriving and so on and so forth. And their desires actually are, you know, the, the gears of the combine that a good, righteous man gets caught in. This man, John, dies because of their little wars and really ultimately because their desires, what they wanted. Herod is ultimately controlled by his sexual appetite and his appetite for the approval of man. Herodias is controlled by her appetite to do what she wants and her ability to manipulate and get away with it. Thus, if you think about it, as I thought about this story, it's actually kind of fitting that John the Baptist's head is served on a platter. Isn't that interesting? What is a platter used for? Isn't it to appeal to and to satisfy appetites? The death of John the Baptist was highly political, but it satisfied the appetites of the powers that be. I just think it's interesting that his head would be served up on a platter. Why? To satisfy sinful desire. And really, when you look into, this is, what, this is the picture that Mark is drawing. Look at this house. Look at this tent of wickedness that all of this is going down in. You know what it's driven by? I want. I'm hungry for sin. And I will get it. And I will thirst for it. And I will stop at nothing to satisfy my cravings. And in the, in the process of that, John the Baptist gets kind of sacrificed on that altar. And what do we mean when we talk about things being political? This is a kind of a political game. We kind of talk about that. 
when it gets political, really isn't that just code for people trying to appease the interest of whoever is the most powerful? Not necessarily doing what is right. When we talk about things being political, that's really what we mean, is that there's desire at the table and it appeases whoever is most powerful. And Jesus and John both died by the power of the civil authorities, not because they did what was wrong, but because they did what was right. Isn't that interesting? Luke 7.28 tells us this, that I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. John the Baptist is a great man. And a great man was executed in the scandal of sinful desires. Christians, this is what we must come to expect. To the extent that the world marches to the beat of greed, of decadence, of power and wealth, it will not take a sta- it will not tolerate those who take a stand for what is right. If you mess with the things that they desire and they want, you will be treated just as unfairly as John and Jesus if you are his disciples. And we can come to expect that. And I think Mark tells us you should Let me talk about the contrast between, a couple of contrasts now. A couple more points here. Contrast between Herod and John the Baptist. Let's contrast the kingdom of God with the kingdom of man. Now, Herod definitely wants to be a great man. He wants to be a great man. He wants to be a great man of power and influence and wealth. But really, if you look at it, he winds up distressed and sorry. That's his end goal. That's his end game here. Pay attention to that. Herod is a man who ultimately caves into the desires of his wife. He caves into the desires of his constituents. And really, he caves into the desires of his flesh. And in the end, it all implodes upon itself. And by contrast, if you really contrast this, John the Baptist, he stands tall. And then you might say, well, John the Baptist was the one who got his head cut off. Well, yeah, that's a good point. But let's consider this. Look at Herod. Look at the end game for Herod. Look at the end game of of their marriage and what they do. And look at the end game for John the Baptist. He stands upon the rock of God's word when he says marriage is between one man and one woman. There's only two genders. Jesus is the only way to God. You cannot marry whom you want. Yeah, John the Baptist gets his head cut off for that, but he stands Do you realize that he stands upon his conviction? He has the freedom to say, this is the rock. This is the word that was true yesterday, today, and forevermore. And he stands upon his conviction, and he has the ability to live true to himself. And you know what? Let's think about Herod and John the Baptist today. Where is John the Baptist? He's in the presence of Christ, enjoying eternal life in his kingdom forevermore. Herod is not. He's separated from God. He's facing the punishment of rejecting Christ And he's facing separation from God forevermore. Now, let me talk to young people here. I I want to talk to all of you, obviously, but young people, you have some big decisions to make in your lives. You do. You have some big decisions to make in your lives. And our culture, as we think about this today, is becoming increasingly anti-Christian. It really is. It's becoming increasingly anti-Christian. You know, to stand on something as simple as marriage is between one man and one woman, you can get your head cut off for that. Maybe not literally, but figuratively. There's a price to pay. 
And we can all understand that. We can all understand that there is a price to pay. We can get that. It's not over in Pakistan that that will happen or Afghanistan, and we pray for them. It is here. There is a price to pay. There is a cost for discipleship to stand on God's truth. And you are faced with this. I know my own kids are faced with this. You are faced with this decision. How will I live? I remember somebody said this saying to me, you know, it's better or I'm sorry. Here's a saying for you. Um, Where am I? If you don't stand for something, you will fall for everything. The gospel gives you the rock-solid foundation to stand for something. It gives you an eternal truth to live for and to die for. It gives you a rock-solid foundation to live true to yourself and true to God, to please God ultimately, not to please man. If you don't stand for something, you will fall for everything. You see, Herod fell for everything, while John the Baptist, he stood for something. He stood for what was right. He stood for what was true. He stood for what was eternally past, present, and future. And the gospel gives you the foundation to do that. Now, whether you like it or not, you will either serve the kingdom of this world that fades away and implodes upon itself, or you will serve the kingdom of God that will never fade away, that will never crumble. And really, if you think about the picture that Mark is painting here, again, go back to the artistic illustration. Mark is painting a picture here where, look at, look at what the world has to offer you. It all falls apart. It all implodes upon itself. Do you see that? Do you see how it all falls apart and implodes upon itself? As glitzy and as glamorous as it might seem or it might appear, it's all a farce. It's all fading away. It will fade away. Because it's driven by greed, it's driven by lust, it's driven by power and influence and so on. By um, uh, decadence. So whether you like it or not, you will either serve the kingdom of this world or you will serve the kingdom of God. And there's really no middle ground. So you must choose which kingdom will I serve and which kingdom will benefit me in the end. And I would commend to you what this passage is telling us and resounding the kingdom of God is the one who will rise and stand tall throughout eternity. And Mark tells us the truth. And he tells us the truth in two ways. He tells us very honestly, you know what? If you join this team, if you get a part of this program, if you join the kingdom of God, you, you know what? I'm not going to lie to you. You might be attacked. There might be opposition. There will be opposition. And you might have the same kind of fate as John the Baptist. And if you think about it, that, that in itself is a, is a glaring contrast. It's a beautiful contrast uh, between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. Mark is right up front telling us very honestly, this is true. You, you should expect this. I make no qualms about it. This is, this is what you're signing up for. That is, that, that, that's truthful. And to have the truth proclaimed to us is very good, isn't it? No. But he also says, not only that there's a cost to the discipleship, but he also says that if you choose to enter the tower where everyone is partying and having a great time, it will come crashing down and it will crush everybody in its path. That is also true. So not only is there a cost to this, to, to, to being on the, in this kingdom, there's also a much greater, infinitely greater cost if you don't. So I encourage us to stand upon the eternal word of God and to gain the favor of the king of all kings who can reward you not with up to half of his kingdom, which was a lie, but with, the, with all of it forevermore. And that's a glorious reality that King Jesus, the true king of kings, lays out for us.
Now I want to contrast the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Herod. Now I kind of did already, but let me say a few more things about it and then we'll, we'll end. Notice the contrast between the weakness of the disciples and the opulence of Herod's palace. You see, Herod has a palace with the most influential pe people, the prettiest dancers, and the finest foods. That's what's going on here. Now contrast what Jesus has going on. When he sends out his disciples, they get four things. Don't even take money in your belts. Don't even take food with you. And then after, we, hear the, we, we see the story of the 5,000. Guys, I want you, from now on, when you read the story of the 5,000, you should put it in direct contrast with the story that comes right before it, Herod and his palace. By contrast, Jesus and his people, they have very little. And they have what? They have, they have a countryside. They don't have a palace. They have a countryside. And they have 5,000 peasants. And they have five, five loaves of bread and two lousy fish. That's it. But here's, here's another beautiful thing that Mark is painting for us. And he's revealing to us the world has everything and it's still not enough. And the kingdom of God has very little, but it's more than they need. They come back with 12 baskets full. Isn't that amazing? This is what Mark is painting a picture of. And he is helping us to see in Christ we have everything. Because Christ is with us. Because Jesus is with us, that is the deciding factor. We don't need the palace. We don't need the pretty dancers. We don't need the finest foods. What we need is Christ. And when you have Christ, you have more than you need. And without Christ, you can have it all and still not have enough. And that is true. And it is up to you to believe that. Do you believe that? We must ask that question of ourselves, and we must answer that of ourselves. Will we live for the pleasures of this world because we could have it all and still not have enough? Or will we live for Christ and will he satisfy our deepest longings? Because if we have him, we have everything we need. We have more. Now, I know that makes for good sermons and you guys might even say amen. But I'll tell you what, that question is going to be realer and realer for us. Is Christ enough? And I press that question into my heart and in my soul. With Christ, if I have Christ, I have it all and I have more than I need. Now I can stand up here, like I just said, and preach that to you and say that. But there is a reality to that statement. Do you believe that? Do you? And what Mark is painting here for us is he's saying, a resounding yes, he is. He is enough. But you got to believe it for yourself. You do. You have to take this to the bank and you have to cash in on it. You have to believe this. Now Mark refers to Herod as the king. And he does so in almost mocking tones. As another thing I realized is as I meditated on this passage, as I read it again and again and again, you notice the first paragraph, it refers to Herod. And in the second paragraph, he refers to him as the king, the king, the king, the king. He doesn't even, except for the very first time, at the very beginning, I forget what verse it is, he refers to him as Herod. But every time after that, in that second paragraph, it was the king. And it's almost in a mocking sense. It's almost comedic, if you will. It's almost as if he's wearing the sport coat. You know, he's, he's running the town hall, and then he turns around, and he's got gov, you know, abbreviated gov in the back. Because he's such a buffoon, you wouldn't know that he was the king unless he actually reminded you again. Oh, by the way, he's the king. Oh, by the way, he's the king. Oh, by the way, yeah, he's the king. 
And I think Mark is actually saying, yeah, right, he's the king. You know what Herod is actually doing? He's revealing who the true king really is. It's Jesus. You see, Jesus is the one. Jesus is the one who doesn't actually live for his own pleasure, and then he gets somebody else to die. Jesus is the one who, for his guests, he lays his life down so that his guests can live, that that they can have eternal life. Jesus doesn't live for the pleasure of his own heart and his own flesh. He lives for the pleasure of his people that he would lay his life down and sacrifice for. That's the true king. That's the king that we have in Christ. That is your king, brothers and sisters. That is the king that you have. When you worship him, when you join the kingdom of God, that's the king that you have. Do you want Herod to be your king or do you want Jesus to be your king? Because I'll tell you, the kings and the kingdoms of this world, they will not live and they will not die for you. They will live and die for themselves, and that's it. Only Christ is the king who lived and died for you. Only him. That's the only one who has ever done that. That's the only one who ever will. And that's the narrative of humanity. We will, at the end of the day, in the sinful flesh, unless we have divine love that is revealed from heaven, we will not live and die for somebody else. We will let somebody else die for us. In our place, we'll put somebody else's head on the chopping block, but we will not put our own head on the chopping block. Jesus is the one who says, no, I'll put my head on the chopping block. I'll go to the, I'll be on the platter. That is the cross. John the Baptist was on a platter. Jesus was on the platter that was the cross. You see, John the Baptist, or Herod, I should say, he tries to fit the joys of eternity into the temporary. He lives for everything that he can get right now in this world. Jesus is the king who takes the temporary and puts it into the joys of eternity. Do you see he does that for you? He tells you very honestly what life is going to be like on this world. But he also tells you, you know what? This world is temporary. And he puts everything that you experience in this planet, in this world, in your existence right now, he puts it in light of the eternal, the eternal joys. Understand everything that you have, everything that you do, everything that might happen to you is always put into the context of eternal joys. That is a great reality. That is the king that died for you. That is the king who's honest with you. That is the king that you should live and die for. Because he has lived and died for you. So you make up your mind which kingdom is better. Which kingdom is better. And when you think about it, what Herod should have done? What should he have done? Really, instead of like all of this vacillating back and forth, here's this great king, right? He can't even make up his mind. Oh, uh, uh. Uh, uh, I don't want that to happen. Uh. Do you want to be that way? Here's what the kingdom of God does for you. No, that's wrong. It's a sin. God says so. And it's the same yesterday and today and forevermore. What Herod should have done is he should have said, you know what? I repent. Who cares about my dumb oath? It was stupid anyway. He should have repented and said, you know what? Forget it. I don't care if I have to lose my kingship. I will not do what is wrong. He didn't have, he didn't have, he didn't have what it took to actually say that because he did it. Well, I don't know why exactly, but he doesn't know Christ. He doesn't know the God who laid his life down for him. His self-image was way too important to him. And because his self-image was really driving him, because the, the lust for power, the lust for pleasure was really driving him, probably he could never make that. But it isn't until we really have a, a, a joy that is greater, a joy that is greater, 
a joy that transcends this, a king that transcends this, a king that is greater, can we ever say, you know what, I'm a sinner, I repent. Herod should have said, I'm a sinner, I repent, this is wrong, I don't care if I lose my kingship, I don't care if you put my head on a platter, it's wrong. That's what he should have done. And that's what we can do, we repent. Jesus invites all men and women everywhere, repent and believe in the gospel. You know what? Forget the facade. Forget it. Forget the facade. Forget making yourself look all great. The gospel gives you, it gives you license to say, I'm not that great. <laughs> I'm not. I'm really not that great. Christ is. I'm not. I don't have a big thing to keep up here. I don't have a big persona to manage. I don't have to do that. I can be honest. I can be honest. I'm a sinner. I am in need of grace. And that's what Herod really should have said. And oh, the freedom that he could have had in that moment if he was able just to do that. So Mark is honest with us about the cost of discipleship. But you see, brothers and sisters, he also masterfully paints a picture of the train wreck that the kingdoms of this world really are. And it is a train wreck. And if you really stop and slow down and read this story, you will see, man, look at Herod. Look at the kingdoms of this world. Look at all the opulence. Look at all the decadence. And what does it amount to? Nothing. It's a big lie. And he wants us to see and believe that as opulent as they are, and offer, they offer no salvation. There's no salvation in it. And all who live for it and believe in it will be consumed by it. So live for Jesus. Stand firm upon the rock that is Christ. Stand for him because his truth and his love and his reward is the rock beneath your feet and will be forevermore. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And we pray that you would use it, Lord, for your purposes. Lord, if there's anything that I overstated, please correct. Lord, if there's anything that needs to be clarified, Lord, I pray that in time you would grant clarity. But please, Lord, by your spirit, help us, help us, Lord God, to take this word and to find encouragement in it. Thank you that you have given us an eternal king and kingdom and that in it there are joys forevermore. So may you be enough for us, Lord Jesus. May you be enough. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.